And now, Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, chapters 26 to 30. Israel Hands The wind, serving us to a desire, now hauled into the west. We could run so much the easier from the northeast corner of the island to the mouth of the north inlet. Only, as we had no power to anchor and dared not beach her till the tide had flowed a good deal farther, time hung on our hands. The coxswain told me how to lay the ship to. After a good many trials, I succeeded, and we both sat in silence over another meal. Captain, said he at length with that same uncomfortable smile, "'Here's my old shipmate O'Brien. "'Spose you was to heave him overboard. "'I ain't particular as a rule, "'and I don't take no blame for settling his hash, "'but I don't reckon him ornamental now, do you? "'I'm not strong enough, and I don't like the job, "'and there he lies for me,' said I. "'This here's an unlucky ship, this Hispaniola, Jim,' "'he went on, blinking. "'There's a power of men been killed in this Hispaniola.' "'a sight of poor seamen dead and gone "'since you and me took ship to Bristol. "'I never seen such dirty luck, not I. "'There was this here O'Brien now. "'He's dead, ain't he? "'Well, now, I'm no scholar, "'and you're a lad as can read and figure. "'And to put it straight, "'do you take it as a dead man is dead for good? "'Or do we come alive again?' "'You can kill the body, Mr. Hands, "'but not the spirit.' "'You must know that already,' I replied. "'O'Brien there is in another world and may be watching us.' "'Ah,' says he, "'well, that's unfortunate. "'Appears as if killing parties was a waste of time. "'Howsomever, spirits don't reckon for much by what I've seen. "'I'll chance it with the spirits, Jim. "'And now you spoke up free.' "'Then I'll take it kind if you'd step down into that there cabin and get me... "'Well, uh, shiver my timbers. I can't hit the name on it. "'Well, you get me a bottle of wine, Jim. "'This here brandy's too strong for my head.' "'Now, the coxswain's hesitation seemed to be unnatural, "'and as for the notion of his preferring wine to brandy, I disbelieved it. "'The whole story was a pretext. "'He wanted me to leave the deck. So much was plain.' but with what purpose I could in no way imagine. His eyes never met mine. They kept wandering to and fro, up and down, now with a look to the sky, now with a flitting glance upon the dead O'Brien. All the time he kept smiling and putting his tongue out in the most guilty, embarrassed manner, so that a child could have told that he was bent on some deception. I was prompt with my answer, however, for I saw where my advantage lay, and that with a fellow so densely stupid, I could easily conceal my suspicions to the end. Some wine? I said. Far better. Will you have white or red? Well, I reckon it's about the blessed same to me, shipmate, he replied. So it's strong and plenty of it. What's the odds? All right, I answered. I'll bring you port, Mr. Hands, but I'll have to dig for it. With that, I scuttled down the companion with all the noise I could, slipped off my shoes, ran quietly along the sparred gallery, mounted the forecastle ladder, and popped my head out of the fore companion. I knew he would not expect to see me there, yet I took every precaution possible, and certainly the worst of my suspicions proved too true. He had risen from his position to his hands and knees, and though his leg obviously hurt him pretty sharply when he moved, for I could hear him stifle a groan, yet it was at a good, rattling rate that he trailed himself across the deck. In half a minute he had reached the port scuppers and picked, out of a coil of rope, a long knife, or rather a short dirk, discolored to the hilt with blood. He looked upon it for a moment, thrusting forth under his jaw, tried the point upon his hand, and then, hastily concealing it in the bosom of his jacket, trundled back again into his old place against the bulwark. That was all that I required to know. Israel could move about. He was now armed, and if he'd been at so much trouble to get rid of me, it was plain that I was meant to be the victim. What he would do afterwards, whether he would try to crawl right across the island from North Inlet to the camp among the swamps, or whether he would fire Long Tom, trusting that his own comrades might come first to help him, was, of course, more than I could figure. 
Yet I felt sure that I could trust him in one point, since in that our interests jumped together, and that was in the disposition of the schooner. We both desired to have her stranded safe enough in a sheltered place, and so that, when the time came, she could be got off again with a little labor and danger as might be, and until that was done, I considered that my life would certainly be spared. While I was thus turning the business over in my mind, I had not been idle with my body. I had stolen back to the cabin, slipped once more into my shoes, and laid my hand at random on a bottle of wine, and now, with this for an excuse, I made my reappearance on the deck. Hands lay as I had left him, all fallen together in a bundle, and with his eyelids lowered as though he were too weak to bear the light. He looked up, however, at my coming, knocked the neck off the bottle like a man who'd done the same thing often, and took a good swig with his favorite toast of, Here's luck! Then he lay quiet for a little, and then, pulling out a stick of tobacco, begged me to cut him a quid. Cut me a junk of that, says he, for I have no knife and hardly strength enough. So be as I had. Ah, Jim, Jim, I reckon I've missed days. Cut me a quid, as I'll likely be the last, lad, for I'm on my long home, and no mistake. Well, said I, I'll cut you some tobacco, but if I was you and thought myself so badly, I'd go to my prayers like a Christian man. Why? said he. Now you tell me why. Why? I cried. You were asking me just now about the dead. You lived in sin and lies and blood. There's a man you killed lying at your feet this moment, and you ask me why? For God's mercy, Mr. Hands, that's why. I spoke with little heat, thinking of the bloody dirk he'd hidden in his pocket and designed, in his ill thoughts, to end me with. He, for his part, took a great draught of the wine and spoke with the most unusual solemnity. For thirty years, he said, I've sailed the seas and seen good and bad, better and worse, fair weather and foul, provisions running out, knives going, and what not. Well, now I can tell you, I never seen good come of goodness yet. Him as strikes first is my fancy. Dead men don't bite. Them's my views. Amen? So be it. And now, you look here, he added, suddenly changing his tone. We've had about enough of this foolery. The tide's made good by now. You must take my orders, Captain Hawkins, and we'll sail slap in and be done with it. All told, we had scarce two miles to run in, but the navigation was delicate. The entrance to the northern anchorage was not only narrow and shoal, but lay east and west, so that the schooner must be nicely handled to be got in. I think I was a good, prompt, subaltern, and I'm very sure that Hans was an excellent pilot, for we went about and about and dodged in, shaving the banks, with a certainty and a neatness that were a pleasure to behold. Scarcely had we passed the heads before the land closed around us. The shores of North Inlet were as thickly wooded as those of the southern anchorage, but the space was longer and narrower and more like what in truth it was, the estuary of a river. Right before us, at the southern end, we saw the wreck of a ship in the last stages of dilapidation. It had been a great vessel of three masts, but had lain so long exposed to the injuries of the weather that it was hung about with great webs of dripping seaweed, and on the deck of it shore bushes had taken root and now flourished thick with flowers. It was a sad sight, but it showed us that the anchorage was calm. Now, said Hans, look there. There's a pet bit for a beach to ship in. Fine flat sand, never a cat's paw, trees all around of it, and flowers a-blowing like a garden on an old ship. And once beached, I inquired, how shall we get her off again? Why, so, he replied. You take a line ashore there on the other side at low water. Take a turn about one of them big pines. Bring it back. Take a turn around the capstan, and lie to for the tide. Come high water, all hands take a pull upon the line, and off she comes as sweet as nature. Then now, boy, you stand by. We're near the bit now, and she's too much way on her starboard a little. So steady. Starboard? Larboard a little. Steady? 
Steady. So he issued his commands, which I breathlessly obeyed, till, all of a sudden, he cried, Now, my hearty, luff! And I put the helm hard up, and the Hispaniola swung round rapidly and ran stem on for the low, wooded shore. The excitement of these last maneuvers had somewhat interfered with the watch I'd kept hitherto, sharply enough, upon the coxswain. Even then, I was still so much interested, waiting for the ship to touch, that I'd quite forgot the peril that hung over my head, and stood craning over the starwood bulwarks and watching the ripples spreading wide before the bows. I might have fallen without a struggle for my life had not a sudden disquietude seized upon me and made me turn my head. Perhaps I'd heard a creak or seen a shadow moving with the tail of my eye. Perhaps it was an instinct like a cat's. But sure enough, when I looked round, there was Hans, already halfway towards me, with the dirk in his right hand. We must both have cried out aloud when our eyes met, but while mine was the shrill cry of terror, his was a roar of fury like a charging bully's. At the same instant, he threw himself forward, and I leapt sideways towards the bows. As I did so, I let go of the tiller, which sprang sharp to leeward, and I think this saved my life, for it struck hands across the chest and stopped him, for the moment, dead. Before he could recover, I was safe out of the corner where he had me trapped, with all the deck to dodge about. Just forward of the mainmast, I stopped, drew a pistol from my pocket, took a cool aim, though he had already turned and was once more coming directly after me, and drew the trigger. The hammer fell, but there followed neither flash nor sound. The priming was useless with seawater. I cursed myself for my neglect. Why had not I, long before, reprimed and reloaded my only weapons? Then I should not have been as now a mere fleeing sheep before this butcher. Wounded as he was, it was wonderful how fast he could move, his grizzled hair tumbling over his face, and his face itself as red as a red ensign with his haste and fury. I had no time to try my other pistol, nor indeed much inclination, for I was sure it would be useless too. One thing I saw plainly. I must not simply retreat before him, or he would speedily hold me boxed into the bows, as a moment since he had so nearly boxed me in the stern. Once so caught, and nine or ten inches of the blood-stained dirk would be my last experience on this side of eternity. I placed my palms against the mainmast, which was of goodish bigness, and waited, every nerve upon the stretch. Seeing that I meant to dodge, he also paused, and a moment or two passed in feints on his part and corresponding movements upon mine. It was such a game as I'd often played at home about the rocks of Black Hill Cove, but never before, you may be sure, with such a wildly beating heart as now. Still, as I say, it was a boy's game, and I thought I could hold my own at it against an elderly seaman with a wounded thigh. Indeed, my courage had begun to rise so high that I allowed myself a few darting thoughts on what would be the end of the affair, and while I saw certainly that I could spin it out for long, I saw no hope of any ultimate escape. Well, while things stood thus, suddenly the Hispaniola struck, staggered, ground for an instant in the sand, and then, swift as a blow, canted over to the port side till the deck stood at an angle of forty-five degrees, and about a punch of water splashed into the scupper holes and lay in a pool between the deck and the bulwark. We were both of us capsized in a second, and both of us rolled, almost together, into the scuppers, the dead red cap with his arms still spread out, tumbling stiffly after us. So near were we, indeed, that my head came against the coxswain's foot with a crack that made my teeth rattle. Blow and all, I was the first afoot again, for hands had got involved with the dead body. The sudden canting of the ship had made the deck no place for running on. I had to find some new way of escape, and that upon the instant, for my foe was almost touching me. Quick as thought, I sprang into the mizzen shrouds, rattled up hand over hand, and did not draw a breath till I was seated on the cross trees. I had been saved by being prompt. The dirk had struck not half a foot below me as I pursued my upward flight, and there stood Israel hands with his mouth open and his face upturned to mine, a perfect statue of surprise 
and disappointment. Now that I had a moment to myself, I lost no time in changing the priming of my pistol, and then, having one ready for service, and to make assurance doubly sure, I proceeded to draw the load of the other and recharge it afresh from the beginning. My new employment struck hands all of a heap. He began to see the dice going against him, and after an obvious hesitation, he also hauled himself heavily into the shrouds, and with the dirk in his teeth, began slowly and painfully to mount. It cost him no end of time and groans to haul his wounded leg behind him, and I had quietly finished my arrangements before he was much more than a third of the way up. Then, with a pistol in each hand, I addressed him. "'One more step, Mr. Hands,' said I, "'and I'll blow your brains out. "'Dead men don't bite, you know,' I added with a chuckle. "'He stopped instantly. "'I could see by the working of his face that he was trying to think, "'and the process was so slow and laborious that, "'in my newfound security, I laughed aloud. "'At last, with a swallow or two, he spoke, "'his face still wearing the same expression of extreme perplexity.' In order to speak, he had to take the dagger from his mouth, but in all else he remained unmoved. Jim, says he, I reckon we're fouled, you and me, and we'll have to sign articles. I'd have had you but for that there lurch, but I don't have no luck, not I, and I reckon I'll have to strike, which comes hard, you see, for a master mariner to a ship's yonker like you, Jim. I was drinking in his words and smiling away, as conceited as a cock upon a wall, when all in a breath, back went his right hand over his shoulder. Something sang like an arrow through the air. I felt a blow, and then a sharp pang, and there I was, pinned by the shoulder to the mast. In the horrid pain and surprise of the moment, I scarce can say it was by my own volition, and I'm sure it was without a conscious aim. Both my pistols went off, and both escaped out of my hands. They did not fall alone. With a choked cry, the coxswain loosed his grasp upon the shrouds and plunged headfirst into the water. Chapter 27. Pieces of Eight Owing to the cant of the vessel, the masts hung far out over the water, and from my perch on the cross trees I had nothing below me but the surface of the bay. Hands, who was not so far up, was in consequence nearer to the ship, and fell between me and the bulwarks. He rose once to the surface in a lather of foam and blood, and then sank again for good. As the water settled, I could see him lying huddled together on the clean, bright sand in the shadow of the vessel's sides. A fish or two whipped past his body. Sometimes, by the quivering of the water, he appeared to move a little, as if he were trying to rise but he was dead enough for all that, being both shot and drowned, and was food for fish in the very place where he had designed my slaughter. I was no sooner certain of this than I began to feel sick, faint, and terrified. The hot blood was running over my back and chest. The dirk, where it had pinned my shoulder to the mast, seemed to burn like a hot iron, yet it was not so much these real sufferings that distressed me. For these, it seemed to me, I could bear without a murmur was the horror I had upon my mind of falling from the cross-trees into that still green water beside the body of the coxswain. I clung with both hands till my nails ached, and I shut my eyes as if to cover up the peril. Gradually my mind came back again, my pulses quieted down to a more natural time, and I was once more in possession of myself. It was my first thought to pluck forth the dirk, but either it stuck too hard or my nerve failed me and I desisted with a violent shudder. Oddly enough, that very shudder did the business. The knife, in fact, had come the nearest in the world to missing me altogether. It held me by a mere pinch of skin, and this the shudder tore away. The blood ran down the faster, to be sure, but I was my own master again, and only tacked to the mast by my coat and shirt. These last I broke through with a sudden jerk, and then regained the deck by the starboard shrouds, for nothing in the world would I have again ventured, shaken as I was, upon the overhanging port shrouds from which Israel had so lately fallen. I went below, and did what I could for my wound. 
It pained me a good deal and still bled freely, but it was neither deep nor dangerous, nor did it greatly gall me when I used my arm. Then I looked around me, and as the ship was now, in my sense, my own, I began to think of clearing it from its last passenger, the dead man, O'Brien. He had pitched, as I have said, against the bulwarks, where he lay like some horrible, ungainly sort of puppet, life-size indeed, but how different from life's color or life's comeliness. In that position I could easily have my way with him, and as the habit of tragical adventures had worn off almost all my terror for the dead, I took him by the waist as if he had been a sack of bran, and with one good heave, tumbled him overboard. He went in with a sounding plunge. The red cap came off and remained floating on the surface, and as soon as the splash subsided, I could see him and Israel lying side by side, both wavering with the tremulous movement of the water. O'Brien, though still quite a young man, was very bald. There he lay with that bald head across the knees of the man who had killed him, and the quick fishes steering to and fro over both. I was now alone upon the ship. The tide had just turned. The sun was within so few degrees of setting that already the shadow of the pines upon the western shore began to reach right across the anchorage and fall in patterns on the deck. The evening breeze had sprung up, and though it was well warded off by the hill with two peaks upon the east, the cordage had begun to sing a little too softly to itself and the idle sails to rattle to and fro. I began to see a danger to the ship. The jibs I speedily doused and brought tumbling to the deck, but the mainsail was a harder matter. Of course, when the schooner canted over, the boom had swung outboard, and the cap of it and foot or two of sail hung even under water. I thought this made it still more dangerous, yet the strain was so heavy that I half feared to meddle. At last I got my knife and cut the halyards. The peak dropped instantly, a great belly of loose canvas floated broad upon the water, and since, pull as I liked, I could not budge the downhaul, that was the extent of what I could accomplish. For the rest, the Hispaniola must trust to luck, like myself. By this time the whole anchorage had fallen into shadow, the last rays, I remember, falling to a glade of the wood and shining bright as jewels on the flowery mantle of the wreck. It began to be chill. The tide was rapidly fleeing seaward, the schooner scuttling more and more on her beam ends. I scrambled forward and looked over. It seemed shallow enough, and holding the cut hawser in both hands for the last security, I let myself drop softly overboard. The water scarcely reached my waist. The sand was firm and covered with ripple marks, and I waded ashore in great spirits, leaving the Hispaniola on her side, with her mainsail trailing wide upon the surface of the bay. About the same time, the sun went fairly down, and the breeze whistled low in the dusk among the tossing pines. At least, and at last, I was off to sea. Nor had I returned thence empty-handed. There lay the schooner, clear at last from buccaneers, and ready for our own men to board and get to sea again. I had nothing nearer my fancy than to get home to the stockade and boast of my achievements. Possibly I might be blamed a bit for my truantry, but the recapture of the Hispaniola was a clenching answer, and I hoped that even Captain Smollett would confess I had not lost any time. So thinking, and in famous spirits, I began to set my face homeward for the blockhouse and my companions. I remembered that the most easterly of the rivers which drain into Captain Kidd's anchorage ran from the two-peaked hill upon my left, and I bent my course in that direction that I might pass the stream while it was small. The wood was pretty open, and keeping along the lower spurs, I had soon turned the corner of that hill, and not long after waded to the mid-calf across the watercourse. This brought me nearer to where I had encountered Ben Gunn, the maroon, and I walked more circumspectly, keeping an eye on every side. The dusk had come nigh hand completely, and as I opened out the cleft between the two peaks, I became aware of a wavering glow against the sky, where, as I judged, the man of the island was cooking his supper before a roaring fire. And yet I wondered, in my heart, that he should show himself so careless, for if I could see this radiance, might it not reach the eyes of Silver himself, where he camped upon the shore among the marshes? 
Gradually, the night fell blacker. It was all I could do to guide myself even roughly towards my destination. The double hill behind me and the spyglass on my right hand loomed faint and fainter. The stars were few and pale, and in the low ground where I wandered, I kept tripping among bushes and rolling into sandy pits. Suddenly a kind of brightness fell about me. I looked up. A pale glimmer of moonbeams had alighted on the summit of the spyglass. Soon after I saw something broad and silvery moving low down behind the trees, and I knew the moon had risen. With this to help me, I passed rapidly over what remained to me of my journey, and sometimes walking, sometimes running, impatiently drew near to the stockade. Yet, as I began to thread the grove that lies before it, I was not so thoughtless but that I slacked my pace and went a trifle warily. It would have been a poor end of my adventures to get shot down by my own party in mistake. The moon was climbing higher and higher. Its light began to fall here and there in masses through the more open districts of the wood. And right in front of me, a glow of different color appeared among the trees. It was red and hot and now and again it was a little darkened, as it were, the embers of a bonfire smoldering. For the life of me I could not think what it might be. At last I came right down upon the borders of the clearing. The western end was already steeped in moonshine, the rest, and the blockhouse itself, still lay in a black shadow checkered with long silvery streaks of light. On the other side of the house an immense fire had burned itself into clear embers, and shed a steady red reverberation, contrasted strongly with the mellow paleness of the moon. There was not a soul stirring, nor a sound beside the noises of the breeze. I stopped with much wonder in my heart, and perhaps a little terror also. It had not been our way to build great fires. We were, indeed, by the captain's orders, somewhat sparing with firewood and I began to fear that something had gone wrong while I was absent. I stole round by the eastern end, keeping close in shadow, and at a convenient place where the darkness was thickest, crossed the palisade. To make assurance surer, I got upon my hands and knees and crawled, without a sound, towards the corner of the house. As I drew nearer, my heart was suddenly and greatly lightened. It was not a pleasant noise in itself, and I have often complained of it at other times. But just then it was like music to hear my friends snoring together so loud and peaceful in their sleep. The sea cry of the watch, that beautiful, all's well, never fell more reassuringly on my ear. In the meantime, there was no doubt of one thing, they kept an infamous bad watch. If it had been Silver and his lads that were now creeping in on them, not a soul would have seen daybreak. That was what it was, thought I, to have the captain wounded, and again I blamed myself sharply for leaving them in that danger with so few to mount guard. By this time I had got to the door and stood up. All was dark within, so that I could distinguish nothing by the eye. As for sounds, there was the steady drone of the snorers and a small occasional noise, a flickering or pecking, that I could in no way account for. With my arms before me, I walked steadily in. I should lie down in my own place, I thought with a silent chuckle, and enjoy their faces when they found me in the morning. My foot struck something yielding. It was a sleeper's leg, and he turned and groaned, but without awaking. And then, all of a sudden, a shrill voice broke forth out of the darkness. Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! Pieces of eight! And so forth without pause or change, like the clacking of a tiny mill. Silver's green parrot! Captain Flint! It was she whom I had heard pecking at a piece of bark. It was she, keeping better watch than any human being, who thus announced my arrival with her wearisome refrain. I had no time left me to recover. At the sharp, clipping tone of the parrot, the sleepers awoke and sprang up, and with a mighty oath the voice of Silver cried, Who goes? I turned to run, struck violently against one person, recoiled, and ran full into the arms of a second, who, for his part, closed upon and held me tight. "'Bring a torch, Dick,' said Silver, when my capture was thus assured. And one of the men left the log house 
and presently returned with a lighted brand. Chapter 28 In the Enemy's Camp The red glare of the torch, lighting up the interior of the blockhouse, showed me the worst of my apprehensions realized. The pirates were in possession of the house and stores. There was the cask of cognac. There were the pork and bread, as before. And what tenfold increased my horror? Not any sign of any prisoner. I could only judge that all had perished, and my heart smote me sorely that I had not been there to perish with them. There were six of the buccaneers, all told. Not another man was left alive. Five of them were on their feet, flushed and swollen, suddenly called out of the first sleep of drunkenness. The sixth had only risen upon his elbow. He was deadly pale, and the blood-stained bandage round his head told that he had recently been wounded, and still more recently dressed. I remembered the man who had been shot and had run back among the woods in the great attack, and doubted not that this was he. The parrot sat, preening her plumage, on Long John's shoulder. He himself, I thought, looked somewhat paler and more stern than I was used to. He still wore the fine broadcloth suit in which he had fulfilled his mission, but it was bitterly the worse for wear, daubed with clay and torn with sharp briars of the wood. So, said he, here's Jim Hawkins. Shiver my timbers. Dropped in like, eh? Well, come, I take that friendly. And thereupon he sat down across the brandy cask and began to fill a pipe. Give me a loan of the link, Dick, said he. And then, when he had a good light, That'll do, lad, he added. Stick the glim in the wood heap. And you, gentlemen, bring yourselves too. You needn't stand up for Mr. Hawkins. He'll excuse you. You may lay to that. And so, Jim, stopping the tobacco, here you were. And quite a pleasant surprise for poor old John. I see you were smart when first I set my eyes on you. But this here gets away from me clean, it do. To all this, as may be well supposed, I made no answer. They had set me with my back against the wall, and I stood there, looking silver in the face, pluckily enough, I hope, to all outward appearance, but with black despair in my heart. Silver took a whiff or two of his pipe with great composure, and then ran on again. Now you see, Jim, so be as you are here says he. I'll give you a piece of my mind. I've always liked you, I have, for a lad of spirit, and the picture of my own self when I was young and handsome. I always wanted you to join and take your share, and die a gentleman. And now, and now, by God, you've got to. Captain Smollett's a fine seaman, as I'll owe up to any day, but stiff on discipline. Duty is duty, says he, and right he is. Just you keep clear of the captain. The doctor himself has gone dead again, you. Ungrateful scamp, was what he said. And the short and long of the whole story is about here. You can't go back to your own lot, for they won't have you. And without you start a third ship's company all by yourself, which might be lonely, let the join with Captain Silver. So far, so good. My friends then were still alive, and though I partly believed the truth of Silver's statement, that the cabin party were incensed at me for my desertion. I was more relieved than distressed by what I heard. I don't say nothing as to your being in our hands, continued Silver, though there you are, and you may lay to it. I'm all for argument. I never seen good come out of threatening. If you like the service, well, you join. And if you don't, Jim, why, you're free to answer no. Free and welcome, shipmate. And if fair can be said by mortal seamen, then shiver my sides. Am I to answer then? I asked with a very tremulous voice. Through all this sneering talk, I was made to feel the threat of death that overhung me, and my cheeks burned, and my heart beat painfully in my breast. Lad, said Silver, no one's oppressing of you. Take your bearings. None of us won't hurry you, mate. Time goes so pleasant in your company, you see. Well, says I, growing a bit bolder, if I'm to choose, I declare I have a right to know what's what, and why you're here, and where my friends are. What's what? 
repeated one of the buccaneers in a deep growl. Ah, uh, he'd be a lucky one as no dead. You'll perhaps batten down your hatches till you're spoke to, my friend, cried Silver truculently to this speaker. And then, in his first gracious tones, he replied to me, Yesterday morning, Mr. Hawkins, said he, in the dog watch, down came Dr. Leibsey with a flag of truce. Says he, Captain Silver, you're sold out. Ship's gone. Well, maybe we'd been taking a glass or two and a song to help it round. I won't say no. Leastways, none of us had looked out. We looked out, and by thunder, the old ship was gone. I never seen a pack of fools look fishier, and you may lay to that if I tells you that looked the fishiest. Well, says the doctor, let's bargain. We bargained him and I, and here we are. Stores, brandy, blockhouse, the firewood you was thoughtful enough to cut, and in a manner of speaking, the whole blessed boat, from across trees to Kelson. As for them, they've tramped. I don't know where's they are. He drew again quietly at his pipe. And lest you should take it into that head of yours, he went on, that you was included in this treaty. Here's the last word that was said. How many are you, says I, to leave? Four, says he, four, and one of us wounded. As for that boy, I don't know where he is, confound him. And I don't much care. We're about sick of him. And these was his words. Is that all? I asked. Well, it's all you're to hear, my son, returned Silver. And now am I to choose? And now you are to choose, and you may lay to that, said Silver. Well, said I, I'm not such a fool, but I know pretty well what I have to look for. Let the worst come to the worst. It's little I care. I've seen too many die since I fell in with you. But there's a thing or two I have to tell you, I said, and by this time I was quite excited. And the first is this. Here you are, in a bad way. Ship lost, treasure lost, men lost, your whole business gone to wreck. And if you want to know who did it, it was I. I was in the apple barrel that night we sighted land. And I heard you, John, and you, Dick Johnson, and Hans, who is now at the bottom of the sea and told every word you said before the hour was out. And as for the schooner, it was I who cut her cable, and it was I that killed the men you had aboard her, and it was I who brought her where you'll never see her more, not one of you. The laugh's on my side. I've had the top of this business from the first. I no more fear you than I fear a fly. Kill me, if you please, or spare me. But one thing I'll say, and no more, if you spare me, Bygones are bygones, and when you fellows are in court for piracy, I'll save you all I can. It's for you to choose. Kill another and do yourselves no good, or spare me and keep a witness to save you from the gallows. I stopped, for I tell you I was out of breath, and to my wonder, not a man of them moved, but all sat staring at me like as many sheep, and while they were still staring, I broke out again. And now, Mr. Silver, I said, I believe you're the best man here, and if things go to the worst, I'll take it kind of you to let the doctor know the way I took it. I'll bear it in mind, said Silver, with an accent so curious that I could not, for the life of me, decide whether he were laughing at my request or had been favorably affected by my courage. I'll put one to that, cried the old mahogany-faced seaman, Morgan by name whom I'd seen in Long John's public house upon the quays of Bristol. It was him that knowed Black Dog. Well, and see here, added the sea cook, I'll put another again to that by thunder, for it was this same boy that faked the chart from Billy Bones. First and last, we've split upon Jim Hawkins. Then here goes, said Morgan with an oath, and he sprang up, drawing his knife as if he was twenty years old. Avast there, cried Silver. Who are you, Tom Morgan? Maybe you thought you was captain here, perhaps. By the powers, I'll teach you better. Cross me and you'll go where many a good man's gone before you, first and last. These thirty year back, 
some to the yard arm, shiver my timbers, and some by the board, and all that feed the fishes. There's never a man looked between my eyes and seen a good days afterwards. Tom Morgan, you may lay to that. Morgan paused, but a hoarse murmur rose from the others. Tom's right, said one. I stood hazing long enough from one, added another. I'll be hanged if I be hazed by you, John Silver. Did any of you gentlemen want to have it out with me? Word Silver, bending forward from his position on the keg, with his pipe still glowing in his right hand. Put a name on what you're at. You ain't dumb, I reckon. Him that wants it shall get it. Have I lived this many years, and a son of a rum punching cock has had a thwart my hawse at the latter end of it? You know the way. You're all gentlemen of fortune, by your account. Well, I'm ready. Take a cutlass, him that dares, and I'll see the color of his inside, crutch and all, before that pipe's empty. Not a man stirred, not a man answered. So that's your sword, is it? He added, returning his pipe to his mouth. Well, you're a gay lot to look at anyway. Not much worth to fight you ain't. Perhaps you can understand King George's English. I'm captain here by election. I'm captain here as I'm the best man by a long sea mile. You won't fight, as gentlemen of fortune should. Then by thunder you'll obey, and you may lay to it. I like that boy now. I never seen a better boy than that. He's more a man than any pair of rats of you in this here house. And what I say is this. Let me see him that lay a hand on him. That's what I say. And you may lay to it. There was a long pause after this. I stood straight up against the wall, my heart still going like a sledgehammer, but with a ray of hope now shining in my bosom. Silver leaped back against the wall, his arms crossed, his pipe in the corner of his mouth, as calm as though he'd been in church. Yet his eye kept wandering furtively, and he kept the tail of it on his unruly followers. They, on their part, drew gradually together towards the far end of the blockhouse, and the low hiss of their whispering sounded my ear continuously like a stream. One after another, they would look up, and the red light of the torch would fall for a second on their nervous faces. But it was not towards me, it was towards Silver that they turned their eyes. "'You men seem to have a lot to say,' remarked Silver, spitting far into the air. "'Pipe up and let me hear it, or lay to.' "'Ax your pardon, sir,' returned one of the men. "'You're pretty free with some of the rules. Maybe you'll kindly keep an eye upon a rest. The crew's dissatisfied. This crew don't valley bully in a marlin spike. This crew has its rights like other crews. I'll make so free as that, and by your own rules. I take it we can talk together. I ask your pardon, sir, acknowledging you for to be captain at this present, but I claim my right and steps outside for a council. And with an elaborate sea salute, this fellow, a long, ill-looking, yellow-eyed man of five-and-thirty, stepped coolly towards the door and disappeared out of the house. One after another, the rest followed his example, each making a salute as he passed, each adding some apology. "'According to rules,' said one. "'Forecastle council,' said Morgan. And with one remark or another, all marched out and left Silver and me alone with a torch. The old sea cook instantly removed his pipe. "'Now you look here, Jim Hawkins,' he said in a steady whisper that was no more than audible. "'You're within half a plank of death, and that's a long sight worse of torture. "'They're going to throw me off. "'But you, Mark, I stand by you through thick and thin. "'I didn't mean to. "'No, not till you spoke up. "'I was about desperate to lose that much blunt and be hanged in the bargain. "'But I see you was the right sort. "'I says to myself, "'You stand by Hawkins, John, and Hawkins will stand by you.' You're his last card, and by the living thunder, John, he's yours. Back to back, says I. You save your witness, and he'll save your neck. I began dimly to understand. You mean all's lost? I asked. Ah, oh, by gum I do, he answered. Ship gone, neck gone. That's the size of it. 
Once I looked into that bay, Jim Hawkins, and seen no schooner. Well, I'm tough, but I gave out. As for that lot and their council, mark me. They're outright fools and cowards. I'll save your life, if so be as I can, from them. But see here, Jim, tit for tat, you saved Long John from swinging. I was bewildered. It seemed a thing so hopeless he was asking. He, the old buccaneer, the ringleader throughout. What I can do, that I'll do, I said. And it's a bargain, cried Long John. You speak up plucky, and by thunder, I've got at least a chance. He hobbled to the torch where it stood propped among the firewood and took a fresh light to his pipe. Understand me, Jim, he said, returning. I've a head on my shoulders, I have. I'm on Squire's side now. I know you got that ship safe somewheres. How you done it, I don't know. But safe it is. I guess Hans and O'Brien turned soft. I never much believed in neither of them. Now you mark me. I ask no questions, nor I won't let others. I know when a game's up, I do. And I know a lad that's got stomach. Ah, you that's young. You and me might have done a power of good together. He drew some cognac from the cask into a tin ramekin. Will you taste, messmate? He asked, and when I'd refused, Well, I'll take a drain myself, Jim, said he. I need a caulker, for there's trouble on land. And talking of trouble, why did that doctor give me the chart, Jim? My face expressed a wonder so unaffected that he saw the needlessness of further questions. Ah, well, he did, though, said he. And there's something under that, no doubt. Something surely under that, Jim, bad or good. And he took another swallow of the brandy, shaking his great fair head like a man who looks forward to the worst. Chapter 29 The Black Spot Again The council of buccaneers had lasted some time when some of them returned to the house and with a reputation of the same salute which had in my eyes an ironical air begged for a moment's loan of the torch. Silver briefly agreed and this emissary retired again leaving us together in the dark. There's a breeze coming in, Jim, said Silver who had by this time adopted quite a friendly and familiar tone. I turned to the loophole nearest me and looked out. The embers of the great fire had so far burned themselves out and now glowed so low and duskily that I understood why these conspirators desired a torch. About halfway down the slope to the stockade they were collected in a group. One held the light, another was on his knees in their midst, and I saw the blade of an open knife shine in his hand with varying colors in the moon and torchlight. The rest were all somewhat stooping as though watching the maneuvers of this last. I could just make out that one had a book as well as a knife in his hand, and was still wondering how anything so incongruous had come in their possession, when the kneeling figure rose once more to his feet, and the whole party began to move together towards the house. "'Here they come,' said I, and I returned to my former position, for it seemed beneath any dignity that they should find me watching them. "'Well, let them come, lad, let them come.' said Silver cheerily. I've still a shot in my locker. The door opened, and the five men, standing huddled together just inside, pushed one of their number forward. In any other circumstances, it would have been comical to see his slow advance, hesitating as he set down each foot, but holding his closed right hand in front of him. Step up, lad, cried Silver. I won't eat you. Hand it over, lover. I know the rules I do. I wouldn't hurt a deputation. Thus encouraged, the buccaneer stepped forth more briskly, and having passed something to Silver from hand to hand, slipped more smartly back again to his companions. The sea cook looked at what had been given him. The black spot? I thought so, he observed. Where might you have got the paper? Why, hello, look here. Now ain't this lucky. You've gone and cut this out of a Bible. "'What fools cut a Bible?' "'Ah, there,' said Morgan. "'Why, there, what did I say? 
No good of come of that, I said. Well, you about fixed it now among you, continued Silver. You'll all swing now, I reckon. What soft-headed lubber had a Bible? I was Dick, said one. Dick, was it? Then Dick can get the prayers, said Silver. He's seen a slice of luck, has Dick, and you may lay to that. But here the long man with the yellow eyes struck in. Belay that talk, John Silver, he said. This crew has tipped you the black spot in full counsel, as in duty bound. Just you turn it over, as in duty bound, and see what's wrote there. And then you can talk. Well, thank you, George, replied the sea cook. You always was brisk for business, and has the rules by heart, George, as I'm pleased to see. Well, what is it, anyway? Ah, deposed. That's it, is it? Very pretty rote, to be sure. Like print, I swear. Your hand to write, George. Why, you is getting quite a leading man in this here crew. It'll be captain next. I shouldn't wonder. Just oblige me with that torch again, will you? This pipe don't draw. Come now, said George. You don't fool this crew no more. You're a funny man by your account. But you're over now, and you'll maybe step down off that barrel and help vote. I thought you said you knowed the rules, returned Silver contemptuously. Leastways, if you don't, I do, and I wait here, and I'm still your captain, mine, till you ouch with your grievances, and I reply. In the meantime, your black spot ain't worth a biscuit. After that, we'll see. Ah, oh, replied George, you don't be under no kind of apprehension. We're all square, we are. First, you made a hash out of this cruise. You'll be a bold man to say no to that. Second, you let the enemy out this here trap for nothing. Why did they want out? I don't know, but it's pretty plain they wanted it. Third, you wouldn't let us go at them upon the march. Oh, we see through you, John Silver. You want to play booty. That's what's wrong with you. And then fourth, there's this here boy. Is that all? Asked Silver, quietly. Enough, too, retorted George. We'll all swing and sun-dry for your bungling. Well, now, look here. I'll answer these four pints. One after another, I'll answer them. I made a hash of this cruise, did I? Well, now, you all know what I wanted, and you all know if that had been done, we'd have been aboard the Hispaniola this night as ever was, every man of us alive and fit and full of good plum duff, and the treasure in the hold of her. "'By thunder. "'Well, who crossed me? "'Who forced my hand, as was the lawful captain? "'Who tipped me the black spot the day we landed "'and began this dance? "'Oh, it's a fine dance. "'I'm with you there. "'And looks mighty like a hornpipe in the rope's end "'at execution dock by London Town. "'It does. "'But who done it? "'Why, it was Anderson and Hands. "'And you, George Mary. "'And you're the last above board of that same meddling crew. "'and you have the Davy Jones insolence "'to up and stand for captain over me? "'You, that sank the lot of us, by the powers, "'but this top's the stiffest yarn to nothing.' "'Silver paused, and I could see by the faces "'of George and his late comrades "'that these words had not been said in vain. "'And that's for number one! "'And that's for number one! cried the accused, "'wiping the sweat from his brow, "'for he'd been talking with the vehemence "'that shook the house. "'Why, I give you my word!' I'm sick to speak to you. You're neither sense nor memory, and I leave it to fancy where your mother's was that let you come to see. See! Gentlemen of fortune! I reckon tailors is your trade. Go on, John, said Morgan. Speak up to the others. Ah, the others, returned John. They're a nice lot, ain't they? You say this cruise is bungled? Aha! By gum! If you could understand how bad it's bungled, you would see. We're that near the gibbet that my neck's stiff with thinking on it. You've seen them, maybe, hanged in chains? Birds about them, picking out their eyes? Seamen pinting them out as they go down with the tide. Who's that? says one. Why, that's John Silver. I knowed him well, says another. And you can hear the chains a-jangle as you go about and reach for the other buoy. Now that's about where we are, every mother's son of us, thanks to him, and hands, 
and Anderson, and other ruination fools of you. And if you want to know about number four, and that boy, why, shiver my timbers. Isn't he a hostage? Are we going to waste a hostage? No, not us. He might be our last chance, and I shouldn't wonder. Kill that boy? Not me, mate. And number three? Ah, well, there's a deal to say to number three. Maybe you don't count it nothing to have a real college doctor to see you every day. You, John, with your head broke? Or you, George Mary, that had the egg shakes upon you not six hours agone? And has your eyes the color a lemon peel to the same moment on the clock? And maybe, perhaps, you didn't know there was a consort coming either. But there is, and not so long till then, and we'll see who'll be glad to have a hostage when it comes to that. And as for number two, and why I made a bargain, well, you came crawling on your knees to me to make it. On your knees you came. You was that downhearted. And you'd have starved, too, if I hadn't. But that's a trifle. You look there. That's why. And he cast down upon the floor a paper that I instantly recognized, none other than the chart on yellow paper with the three red crosses that I'd found in the oilcloth at the bottom of the captain's chest. Why the doctor had given it to him was more than I could fancy. But if it were inexplicable to me, the appearance of the chart was incredible to the surviving mutineers. They leaped upon it like cats upon a mouse. It went from hand to hand, one tearing it from another, and by the oaths and cries and the childish laughter with which they accompanied their examination, you would have thought not only were they fingering the very gold, but were at sea with it besides, in safety. Yes, said one. That's Flint. Sure enough. J.F. And a scar below, with a clove hitch to it, as he's done ever. Mighty pretty, said George. But how are we to get away with it? And us, no ship. Silver suddenly sprang up and supported himself with a hand against the wall. Now I give you a warning, George, he cried. One more word of your sauce, and I'll call you down and fight you. How? Why? How do I know? You had ought to tell me that. You and the rest that lost me my schooner. With your interference, burn you. But not you, you can't. You hain't got the invention of a cockroach. But civil you can speak, and shall, George Mary. You may lay to that. That's fair now, said the old man Morgan. Fair, I reckon so, said the sea cook. You lost the ship. I found the treasure. Who's the better man at that? And now I resign, by thunder. Elect whom you please to be your captain now. I'm done with you. Silver, they cried. Barbecue forever. Barbecue for captain. So that's the tune, is it? cried the cook. George, I reckon you'll have to wait another turn, my friend. And lucky for you as I'm not a revengeful man. But that was never my way. And now, shipmates, this black spot? Tain't much good now, is it? Dick's crossed his luck and spoiled his Bible, and that's about all. It'll do to kiss the book on still, won't it? Growled Dick, who was evidently uneasy at the curse he'd brought upon himself. A Bible with a bit cut out? Returned Silver derisively. Not it. It don't buy no more than a ballad book. Don't it, though? Cried Dick with a sort of joy. Well, I reckon that's worth having, too. Here, Jim, there's a curiosity for you, said Silver, and he tossed me the paper. It was around the size of a crown piece. One side was blank, for it had been the last leaf. The other contained a verse or two of revelation. These words among the rest, which struck sharply home upon my mind. Without are dogs and murderers. The printed side had been blackened with wood ash, which had already begun to come off and soil my fingers. On the blank side had been written, with the same material, the one word, deposed. I had that curiosity beside me at this moment as I write, but not a trace of writing now remains beyond a single scratch, such as a man might make with his thumbnail. And that was the end of the night's business. Soon after, with a drink all round, we lay down to sleep, and the outside of Silver's vengeance was to put George Mary up for sentinel and threaten him with death if he should prove unfaithful. It was long ere I could close an eye, 
and heaven knows I had matter enough for thought in the man whom I'd slain that afternoon, in my own most perilous position, and above all, in the remarkable game that I saw Silver now engaged upon, keeping the mutineers together with one hand, and grasping with the other after every means, possible and impossible, to make his peace and save his miserable life. He himself slept peacefully and snored aloud, yet my heart was sore for him, wicked as he was, to think on the dark perils that environed and the shameful hangman's noose that awaited him. <laughs>